Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to episode six of the Think Orphan podcast, where we help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, tell us who you had a chance to talk with today. Yeah, I was able to uh, have a great conversation with Rebecca Knepp, who is with ACCI. She's actually the joint CEO and the head of international programs for this great organization that um, also has an initiative called Connected at connected.org. And it's a fantastic uh, conversation that we were able to have about really difficult uh, issues such as deinstitutionalization, about some of the myths about uh, orphans and orphanages some of the ways that we can really help uh, children um, to really thrive in difficult situations. So this is a woman who has um, worked in orphan care and to love how um, and really think about how to love orphaned and vulnerable children. She's also a musician. She's a multi-talented woman. And as you'll learn, this woman is really smart and she has a whole lot to teach us. Yeah, I'm excited to listen to her Australian accent, too. So let's get to it. Rebecca, it's great to have you here with us all the way from Australia. It's really great to be part of the Think Orphan conversation. Thank you so much for including me. Well, Rebecca, I know that uh, I've gotten to know you recently from uh, through the World Without Orphans Forum in Chiang Mai, Thailand. But I know a lot of the listeners uh, really don't know much about you, if anything. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit um, about your story and how you got to be where you are today. Sure. Well, it's been quite a long journey for me. I um, have been working in the international development sector for just over 16 years, and about 11 years of that was spent living and working in Cambodia. And uh, although my primary focus initially there was looking at um, more community-based development and community-led development processes, over time I became quite aware of the issue of children growing up in residential care. And it was at that time that we really started to see the first generation of care leavers start exit care and uh, start to see some of the ramifications in their lives and and the struggles that they were having in trying to cope with re-entering society. And at that time, I actually had a, a young care leaver live with me for the first year or so that I was in Cambodia and we became quite good friends and um, quite a good support network to each other. They all followed and exited care as well and seeing how they coped, um, that I really began to become aware of, of the issue around um, you know, orphans and children living in residential care. So that was the start of my journey. And from there, I began really looking into it, researching it. And then over time, with a couple of other people in Cambodia, was part of um, an organization being established there called Children and Families, which was set up to provide foster care and alternative care, family-based alternative care to children in Cambodia as an alternative to long-term residential care. And uh, Kathleen Jones, who founded that, actually used to work in the orphanage where the, the care lever that I lived with um, had come from. And so we became good friends and you know, supported her as she uh, launched that organization and was involved in that for quite a number of years and still remain to be today. Then uh, after 11 years, I moved back to Australia to take on the role that I have now with ACC International. Um, I was with ACC International when I was field-based as well and began to really realize that we'd gone on quite a journey 
in Cambodia around moving away from residential care, but the organization that I was with hadn't gone on that journey with us. And so really began to look at what was happening in the other countries where we were working and realized that we had a lot of long-term residential care programs and not a lot of awareness around the potential pitfalls or harms with that. And so it was that point that point that I um, initiated the Connected Program, which is the program within ACC International that really looks at transitioning away from residential care, and that has grown over time. So that has you know really branched out to be um, programming in countries where residential care has been quite a significant focus, as well as a lot of work within the church and advocacy work within our own denomination, the Australian Christian Churches Movement in Australia, as well as other Christian denominations around the world as well. Yeah, that's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And, and I think that just to take a step back for some of the listeners who may not really be aware of some of the terms, uh, what Exactly. When you talk about residential care, what are you referring to in that in that uh, term? Sure. Um, any type of care where children are living um, in and out of parental care that's in a, a residential environment. So that could be a group home. It could be um, an orphanage. It could be a children's home, a children's village. And it also includes, you know, sort of more traditional institutional care as well as what we call compound foster care or small foster homes or small group homes in one um, large premise. So any where a child is um, living with a care who is remunerated, who is a staff member or who is doing that in some kind of professional capacity with other non-related children is really what we sort of mean when we talk about residential care. And a lot of what ACCI and the Connected program that you've started is, is doing and focusing on is the idea of deinstitutionalization and family preservation. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, what deinstitutionalization is and maybe sure. what the reality is, uh, realities and kind of careful steps that would be taken in the process of deinstitutionalization. Sure. So deinstitutionalization is a, a pretty, um, pretty awful term. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty horrible sounding term. But what it really means is it's a process of changing the way care is provided for children. So sometimes when people hear the word deinstitutionalization, they understand it to mean the process of reintegrating children out of residential care back into their families. But it's actually a much bigger process than that. It really looks at deinstitutionalizing the care system. In other words, taking it away from having a primary focus on putting children in residential types of care environments to supporting children within their communities and in their families. So it encompasses both the process of actually transitioning children out of residential care facilities, but it also encompasses the processes of developing family-based care systems and programs and family strengthening programs and shifting where the resources being focused as well as the human resources. So it's quite a, a big process that really looks at reforming care systems. And one of the things I remember you talking about uh, at the forum was the fact that it's not just something that's going to happen overnight. And in fact, a lot of the churches, a lot of the people you're working with, um, you seem to talk, you you were talking about how it's actually, you're going to have a lot of overlap and potential increased costs, increased increased resources in the short term for a long-term gain. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about that as um, spike costs. So what happens when you engage in deinstitutionalization in order to do it safely and in a manner that is really child-centered and child-focused and in the best interests of children, you're going to end up with a period of time where you're basically running parallel programs unless you are in a country that happens to have a really well-developed family-based or alternative care and family preservation and strengthening system already in place, which is not necessarily the most typical scenario. So what usually happens is 
is as you begin to prepare for, for transitioning your program into a family-based model, you've got some costs that increase and these can be around your social work components. So a lot of programs may not actually have professional social workers in place. There may be some standards of care that need to be increased or there may be some changes to programming that need to take place in order to make that process really safe and effective for children and their families. But then you also have a period of time where you're starting to run programs out in the community and for families, uh, supporting families to prepare to bring their children back into their homes and communities, as well as supporting those children when they are actually reintegrated at the same time as you're actually still running your residential care facility. And so that's when you get the dual programs running. And that's where you see a a, a temporary spike um, in costs. But then what we generally see is once those dual programs are no longer in place, once the majority of your children have transitioned into family-based care or back into biological families, then and you start to see a drop in the costs associated with residential care. And that's the point we actually see in becoming a lot more cost effective to um, support children to remain in their families or remain in communities. And we see the same amount of resource, therefore, being able to provide care for an exponential number of children. One of the things, if you're going to um, have these dual costs, is really an understanding. You're going to need to have an understanding of, of why you'd want to do the deinstitutionalization process in the first place, right? And I know you've talked about some myth and myths and misconceptions about orphanages and orphan care in general that need to be dispelled in order to uh, encourage and uh, inspire people to actually want to make the change. Can you talk mm. about that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. There's a number of um, of different yeah mis- misconceptions or myths that we need to address, and we talk about them almost coming in different categories of myths or misconceptions. And one of the primary ones is actually about who these children are. Um, there's often you know a lot of different understandings of what's meant by the term orphan. It can be in some contexts actually quite a problematic or quite a misleading term in and of itself. In that a lot of children who are classified as orphans by some definitions actually have families, and children who are um, orphans by the, the classification or the, the definition of not having either a biological mother or a father actually have relatives. And so a lot of children who are in care do have some kind of family or do have some kind of long-term support network back out in the community. So one of the key misconceptions is about who these children actually are and the fact that there are other viable alternatives for a great number of children who are residing in care. And this is something that we generally find in the circles that we're engaging with is poorly understood, particularly amongst donor communities or church communities who are supporting residential care. They have tended to understand these children to be without any parental care or support networks or have not having other options and therefore um, that creates a sense of legitimacy for the orphanage when they don't understand that there are other pathways that we could actually pursue. So we have to talk about that is one of the key myths. There's also the understanding that children really thrive in orphanages, and that's um, often because, particularly if we're looking at this from a very Western lens, we can see that the economic and the educational support that children can be provided with in residential care to be what is most important for those children and the primary reason why they're placed in care. But that's not all of it, all that a child needs. A child's development is hinged upon quite a holistic um, picture and you know psychosocial support and 
being immersed in a family and a community. And so children generally don't thrive as well in orphanages as they do in good family-based settings. And that's something, again, that can be um, misunderstood. And particularly when you see, you know, don't, we've got donors or we've got visitors going to orphanages and they might see really happy children, um, but they may not understand that when that child is ready to leave care and go back out into the community that they can be really ill-prepared for that stage of life and we can start to see a lot of the detriment come out at that point as well as during their actual childhood um, there's also the misconception that um, about who's really driving this. Uh, while there's some really great uh, residential care facilities that are run to really high standards and are meeting legitimate needs, there's also a lot of them that are being developed because they're fundable. And so many donors are unaware of the fact that the, the, one of the reasons why it continues to be proliferated is that, that there's an abundance of people ready and willing to fund it. And when it becomes something that's easily fundable or marketable, it becomes something that's attractive to people who are looking to um, raise funds or even support other programs through funding residential care. Um, there's also, you know, s some misunderstandings around the theology. So we talk about, you know, theological misconceptions and, and around what does the Bible talk about when it talks about the care of vulnerable children um, and particularly some of the references that really talk about families and supporting a vulnerable family unit and whereas oftentimes we hear in church settings in particular some of those scriptures being used to talk about categories of people being the orphan and the widow versus the orphan and the widow potentially being a family in and of themselves that need to be supported and preserved. So there's, you know, different misconceptions around that. And then the third category that we really look at are types of discrimination or bias that create real mental barriers to engaging with alternatives to orphanages. And some of these can be economic, as we touched on um, before very briefly, about looking at poverty and is it legitimate to remove a child from a family because of poverty or because of education and also seeing that, you know, there are different understandings of poverty. There's different um, classifications of poverty and there's also different value systems at play here. And sometimes when we look at that from too much of an economic lens, we can discriminate against families and remove their children because of poverty, which is not really a legitimate basis uh, to separate a child from their family. There's also cultural discrimination. So, you know, looking at the way different people live, the way that different families are structured and um, applying a bias to that, that means that we might think that residential care is a better option for children based on some cultural dynamics. Um, and then also the last one that is pretty typical, again, amongst in, in Christian circles in particular, particular is concerns about the child's spirituality and their spiritual development and a perception that a child can be better um, discipled in an orphanage than in a community. And while, you know, communities are not an environment where we control, it's actually much better to reach out to whole families and whole communities and see the gospel penetrate those environments rather than removing children from their families in order to see them discipled within a residential care or an institutional setting. So in brief, there's some of the, um, the myths or the, the misconceptions that we often need to address or, or to speak to when we're engaging with people and encouraging them to look at a transition in their programming. Yeah, and there's so much there. And I know that in the work that, you know, I've been doing over the last few years and just talking with people, the one that really strikes people and surprises them is to hear that 80% of the children or so, 80 or so percent of the children that are in orphanages around the world actually have living family members. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably, you, you had said at the conference as well that, you know, something along the lines of Cambodia doesn't have orphanages because we have orphans, but it has orphans because we have orphanages. Um, can you explain what you meant by that a little bit? 
Yeah, so what that really speaks to is the fact that orphanages can often incentivize family separation. So in a case where a child's living in a community or living in a family and that family might be struggling, when all of the resources are being directed towards residential care and that becomes the only support framework available for vulnerable families and vulnerable children, well, then those families um, can often remove, you know, relinquish their child and place them in residential care in order to access some of the services that that residential care centre can provide them and their child. And so it it incentivizes that separation process, whereas what really we should be looking at doing is looking at what are the real needs of those families. What do they need to be able to keep their children? What do they need to be able to parent their children better? What do they need to be able to support their children and meet their holistic needs? And those services should be available to the child and to the family, but from the community rather than being dependent upon the family relinquishing their child. So it's in that sense that orphanages, when they are when there are too many of them, when there's not enough services that look at prevention and look at um, more family-based interventions, that's when they can become something that actually incentivizes family separation and in a, in, a, in a way creates orphans if we're defining orphan as somebody who's separated from their family and not living with their family. Okay, so let's take this to the practical level. Let's say someone were to call you tomorrow and mm-hmm. say, Rebecca, I want to start an orphanage in Cambodia or, a, you know, any country, say any, any country. I want to start an orphanage. Uh, what, what advice would you give them? I would basically tell them that in, you know, depending on where they are, but in general terms, I would encourage them to look at what are the families and the children's real needs. Um, often when people ring up, and I get that call quite a lot when they ring up and say that that's what they want to do, it's coming out of a set of assumptions. It's coming out of um, an understanding that that's one of the best ways to engage with children who are vulnerable or that there is a legitimate need. And sometimes that's off the back of hearing some of the statistics that are quoted about the number of orphans. And as you said, many of those children are not um, double orphans. They have families. So one of the first things I would say to somebody is before you design what your program is, you need to understand what the real needs are. This needs to be developed upon a very robust evidence-based framework. We also need to be looking into the laws and the legislative framework of the country that we're, we're looking at doing programming within. What are they saying? What is the government asking for? What are the gaps in services? Um, because the last thing we want to do is take the, the resources that we have and go and pour them into a sector that's already flooded or where the contributing to some form of harm or it's contributing to separating families. So I I would always encourage people to direct them back towards looking at what the real needs are, how can you get involved in actually preventing family separation rather than um, consolidating all of the resources in that sort of last resort type of care, which is residential care. And also the thing that I would encourage people to do is when they are struggling with, you know, this is something I feel really called to do is to really separate out what their vision is from the methodology that they're going to use. You know, I would never discourage anybody or any organization from getting involved in looking after or providing support to families and vulnerable children. But we have to look at the best way to do that. That can be our vision, but we have to look at what the most appropriate methodology is to achieve that vision that is actually meeting the real needs of family and is based upon the evidence that's coming out of that context. We need to be looking at developing whole systems of care and support for families and children, not focusing entirely on residential care. Hmm. 
And in all this conversation, we've been you've been talking a lot about family-based care, families, you know, family style care, family preservation. When we're talking about families, that's a, that's a word that is is unfortunately become kind of a loaded term in our societies today, especially I, mean, I know here in America, and I, I I can't speak for Australia, but I know in America, it's really it's become meaning a lot of different things to different people. When you say that, what what are you uh, what do you have in mind when you're talking about family and family-based care? Well, I think when we're talking about family-based care, um, you know, as you said, family can be quite a contentious term and how is it defined? Is it a nuclear family? Is it a mum and dad who are in a married long-term relationship? Is it single parents? You know, it can be a lot of different dynamics. And I think one of the things that's most important is that to recognize that there are many different expressions of families. And what I would use as my basis is most countries have laws around this. Most countries have an alternative care policy or alternative care framework that actually talks about who is, um, what the criteria is for being a, a caregiver or being a family to a child in need in an alternative care setting. And that can look like many different things. It can be a single parent household. It can be a child-headed household. It can be grandparents as caregivers, um, or it can be that more traditional married couple family structure. So we really need to look at, you know, what the criteria is, is within the country, as well as um, how we would personally define families. But I think, you know, there things like understanding that, you know, a family can be somebody who's willing to provide lifelong, long-term, you know, very intimate and very intense social support and a structure to a child who's, who's willing to have them live with them, meet their needs, but not just during their childhood, also throughout the different stages of their life because families' role in our lives don't cease when we hit 18 or when we cease to be considered a child. So I think it's it's pretty fluid in a lot of senses. And, you know, I also think that we need to grapple within that um, with the whole concept of what is an ideal versus what is the practical reality that we're actually dealing with because um, the perfect family is going to be very, very difficult to find. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. I think that is, we can have an ideal that we can shoot for, but to also realize that we live in reality and there are realities we need to actually work through in the in the process of doing this work. Um, so another question, just in the context of deinstitutionalization, and you're, so let's say you're, you go to an orphanage and you say, hey, let's let's just really seek to get these kids back into their families. Let's get some of these kids adopted. Let's get into foster care, whatever that country has available. But, you know, as I've talked with you, as I've talked with some other, there likely, unfortunately, will be a few children in those in those places, in those settings that may not be able to get into a permanent family at that time. So how can we best look after those children and love and care for them with excellence? Yeah, I think that um, as long as that that determination is made um, off real evidence. And so if you've got a really robust um, assessment framework in place and that individual children's situations, needs, families, them as a child, as an individual are being assessed by competent and trained social workers and that, you know, that analysis of what kind of care that child can and can't access is actually developed out of that kind of a framework, then that, that's what we, you know, what we really talk about when we're saying the best interest determination or, or what is in the best interest of a child. And for some children, those assessments are going to reveal that, um, you know, a family may not be the best environment for that child for a period of time due to whatever circumstances or scenarios have, have played out in that child's life, whatever dynamics are involved in that situation. And in those kinds of situations or where all efforts to find a family um, for that particular child have been exhausted and we're not left with any other options outside of residential kinds of care, then I think that's when we need to be looking at 
the most family-like environments that we can with very high standards, with very, very robust and well-defined social work processes in place um, where we've got, you know, we've got assessments happening regularly, where we've got care plans in place that are being regularly reviewed and outworked, where the child's actual placement itself is being reviewed regularly. So where we're not taking children and parking them in a group home or parking them in a residential care environment, but we are still treating this as a temporary type of care, <clears throat> excuse me, with the, uh, with the intent of addressing whatever issues are, are um, resulting in that child not being able to live in a family, whether that's a lack of programming, a lack of options in the country or whether that's dynamics in the child's life, trying to overcome those issues so that at some point that child can move back into a family environment or reintegrate into a, a, a community setting. So I think it's those kinds of in-care environments that have both high standards in terms of the physical structure of the care as well as very good social work processes in play. They're the type of, of things we need to be looking at in those situations where a child can't immediately go into a family. Yeah, that's some good stuff. Very helpful. Very helpful. Um Short-term missions have been something that uh, is, is really a hot topic over the last few years um, and something that's been a part of ministry for decades. Um, today, it's kind of come under fire um, as far as potentially helping or hurting more than helping. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on that as far as short-term missions and in the context of orphan care in particular? Yeah, I think um, it's a very complex issue and a very nuanced issue. Um, and, you know, to unpack it would take, a, you know, really well would take a lot of time, which we don't have here. But to talk about it in, in sound bites, I guess, what I think is that there is a role for short-term missions in this, the orphan care or the, you know, in the sector, in the care sector. But I don't necessarily think that that is um, best outworked by having short-term volunteers interacting directly with children. So I think that in the, in the realm of short-term missions, what we need to be looking at is separating out um, the desires and motivations of teams or churches or sending organizations from what is in the best interest of children and families and making sure that our, our desire to send someone to experience missions, to get more passionate about missions, to become more of a long-term supporter of missions doesn't actually happen at the expense of a child, at the expense of the family and their well-being. So we have to be incredibly cautious in how we do um, engage with children in the context of short-term missions. We have to have very, very robust processes in place to, to screen people properly, but we also have to think very carefully about how we engage them, what kind of activities teams can actually do. And I think one thing that is really clear is that for teams to be taking uh, caregiver roles within residential care settings for any period of time um, is not an appropriate use of short-term teams. Teams are best utilised when they're geared and they're steered towards supporting families, when they're steering, steered towards programs that actually preserve families and develop communities and um, or even, to, you know, short-term missions teams where they go to really learn about what it means to advocate for vulnerable children and orphan children so that when they come back to their home countries, there can be a voice, there can be an advocate, they can share their knowledge and awareness with other people and that their long-term involvement is actually built upon, um, you know, really good, robust understanding of the issues. So I think there is a use, but I think we need to be careful and we really need to to limit the um, amount of caregiving or we shouldn't be allowing short-term teams to get involved in the caregiving of children. Yeah, and I, and I think that uh, there's a lot of wisdom there and I think we need to really um, with missions and all this work that we're doing, we really need to make sure that we're not 
uh, going into situations without really talking with the people that know what they're talking about. And so as churches to not come in, as organizations to not come in and think we want to do this. So therefore, um, you need to uh, allow us to do whatever we want to do. But it's to come in and say, you know, we have, you know, our desires. But at the end of the day, you can tell us they're they're appropriate or inappropriate. And if they're inappropriate, what, what can, how can we really help? Let's develop a relationship um, in this and, and work out of that. And that's, that's, some, that's some great stuff. Um, and on that note, I, I know you said, and I, in, in all fairness, it's, I, I know that it's, we can't answer any of these questions really in a 25-minute podcast. But um, on that note, I know you have a lot of resources on the Connected website and um, in other in other spots. Can you give us the ways people can get more information from you, uh, from ACCI, Connected Program, and all of that? What are some websites or other resources that uh, we can give the, the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a website, which is um, connected.org, um, which is K-I-N-E-N-E. T-E-C-T, sorry, E-D, so connected.org.au. And if you go onto that website, there is lots of information on the webpage there. There's also a resource tab that you can go onto, and we have lots of, of um, resources that you can download and access. We have a connected info pack, which gives you, you know, really great information about the connected program, the goals it's trying to achieve, the countries where it's working, the different um, streams within the connected program. There's also resources there for donors. So we have due diligence tools that you can download and use if you want to really understand um, the types of organizations you're supporting and what does best practice in, in um, forming partnerships look like with programs overseas. We have an orphanage assessment uh, checklist there that you can use if you're already supporting residential care facility and you want to understand is this a, a program that is really um, you know implementing good practice and is really looking at providing the right type of care for a child in the right situation and making sure that they prioritize family-based care above institutional care. There's also links to other great resources and other people's um, websites that have really fantastic information. And very shortly, we'll be releasing protection. What does ethical engagement with children in the context of short-term teams really look like? So that would be a really great resource that has a lot of information as well as practical tools, checklists, um, sample forms, a whole bunch of things in the toolkit associated with it that people would be able to use and access as well. Well, that'd be great. I know I've used a lot of these resources Um on the connected website and they are, they are fantastic. And so thank you for putting those together and for making them available to everybody. Um, a couple last questions. My pleasure. Thank you. And these hopefully will be some more resources that people can use. And, uh, the first question, what, uh, what have you read or listened to in the past few months that has uh, most impacted your thinking on these issues, uh, surrounding orphan care? Hmm. I, um, the last sort of probably 12 months, I've actually been doing probably a little bit more reading in some slightly left of center to this issue fields, but that have really shaped some of my thinking around it. And that's probably more in the area of um, cross-cultural psychology um, and anthropology. Mm. And I think what's been really impacting for me about reading from that, reading that kind of material in the context of um, caring for vulnerable children or looking at, um, you know, the alternative care sector itself is that it brings a real ethnocentric lens to it. So looking at, you know, what does it mean? What does family mean to the culture in which I'm engaging with? What does appropriate care look like to them? What is their, what is their understanding of child protection? And looking at things from the, the cultural perspective of, of other people rather than coming at this very much from my own 
own Western um, centric cultural lens. And that's been really interesting and I think has really helped me to understand why we have some of the roadblocks that we have with um, engaging with the, the reform of, of the childcare sector itself is, is often because of that, you know, lack of understanding of, of a different culture or a different context or inability for, my, for me to be able to strip myself of my own cultural perspectives and values in order to really engage with what's really happening and um, and how care reform is best outworked in another country. So that's probably been one of the, the key areas that I've been reading and researching in recently that I think is really um, interesting and also really critical to the sector. Hmm. And last, uh, what one person has most impacted your thinking on how to best love and care for orphaned and vulnerable children? I would say that the person that most impacted my thinking, I mean, I've got some great colleagues around the world, you know, in different networks that we work in. Um, definitely people within BCM would be, be one of the key ones that I think have really been influential over the way that I see this. But I think the person that has impacted me the most was actually the young care leaver that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, mm. um, whose life, whose perspective, who, who, her voice, she, you know, she she spoke about this at length with me over, you know, over years about what it was like to grow up in care in a really good in care environment um, to boot. You know, she didn't speak negatively of the, of the residential care facility that she lived in, but she just talked about how much she longed for family, how much she longed for belonging, um, how much she would have wished that if she could have chosen the type of intervention that was provided to her, when her family was too poor to be able to raise the children, how she would have wished that she could have had um, that support given to her in a family or to, to be able to, her to stay with a family. And so I think her words, her voice, her perspective, her very personal experience and that of her siblings, probably the voice that has most shaped my understanding um, and most influenced me in this sector. Well, Rebecca, thanks so much for your time. I and mean, we could go on for a whole lot longer, but uh, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom with us. And I look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. My pleasure. Thanks so much for allowing me to be part of this. Well, I had so much fun with that interview. It's, it's just so cool to me that we can talk with someone from all the way across the world. Um, and not only just have a really good conversation, but learn so, so much. And, you know, like you said earlier, the, uh, the Australian accent doesn't hurt either. That was, you know, that is always nice and easy to listen to. So, you know, as you listen to that, Kelly, what, what really stuck out to you? What was something that you learned, um, during that conversation? Well, there was one particular thing that as I was listening, it really caused me to stop and think. And that was when she mentioned how just the cultural bias that we often have in regards to poverty and how people parent and just the standards of how they live and how honestly the western view that we have of that especially when we look at families in different cultures and around the world and so you know she said that poverty often is the cause of as we know children entering orphanages but yet that the alternative of them being in residential care really doesn't trump the fact that they're not in a family anymore, that that is not a better alternative for kids who could still be in in their family if it weren't for poverty. And so just how we come back and approach that with family preservation and offering programs to assist families and how we direct our funding um, can really change the outcome of a child's life. Yeah, and I think that's something we keep coming back to with all the different people we're able to interview and the different people I talk with and you talk with about this stuff. It's 
it's really, um, there's no easy answer. There's no magic bullet. There's nothing that will solve this problem tomorrow. If we could just do this, if we just had more money, if we just had more and more, whatever. It's the same way, you know, when we talk about raising our own children, you know, there's no magic bullet to ensure that you're going to have the perfect kid. I think in this, in this work, it's, I think it's becoming more and more clear the longer and longer you do it, that it's really hard. It's really messy. It's really, um, taking the time to get to know each individual child, each individual person, each individual parent to determine what is the right answer in this individual situation. And I really appreciated just Rebecca's humility that she has learned over the years to take a step back and go, you know, for so long, I thought this was the answer. But you know what, as I study it, there's these myths, there's these misconceptions that we need to address. And we need to understand those things before we can move forward to the next. Absolutely. And you also see that it started when she saw kids coming out of residential care. It started seeing the breakdown when these children re-enter society, as she called it. And so having to step back and say, it doesn't end when a child hits 18. It doesn't end just because in our minds we consider them an adult or because that services are no longer available for this child. Um, and so I think having to really step back and look holistically at this of are we just wanting to, you know, stop a problem today or are we truly looking towards the future and building kids up, building children up to be, you know, society giving, thriving adults? Because if you don't, the, the cycle just repeats itself. Right. No, and, and I know that you guys out there listening um, have a lot of thoughts from that. If, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you listened to that interview, I know that it piqued some questions. It caused you to think about these issues. And so I just invite you to join the conversation and engage it at uh, thinkorphan.com. You can send us an email at info at thinkorphan.com and just ask us the questions. Comment, tell us what you're thinking about this stuff. And we really want to engage that. And, and just in a few episodes, we're going to be able to sit down and, and answer those questions. And sometimes we'll be able to get the people uh, who, you know, we interviewed to answer the questions. Sometimes Kelly and I will just discuss them. Um, and uh, and I just really look forward to that. So, but we need you to get involved. We also need you to rate the podcast. Um, go to iTunes or wherever you're picking up and downloading this uh, this podcast. And thanks for doing that. But go and rate it and just tell us, uh, tell us and everybody else what you're thinking about it. Uh, that would help us a lot. And uh, we definitely value and we take uh, seriously all the feedback that we're getting. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. And for all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.